the Bible, God's good book. You know, God's good book where his first book and his book of books cuts through the inflation of human nonsense every time. And it's because God identifies himself with the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that really does cut through the inflation of human nonsense because this is God's funny family. And we got to lighten up and, and take a look at what we can learn from this funny family. In Genesis chapter 34 to 36, Jacob is going to serve one up for us because, well, we're going to learn God's fix for father failure. Ooh, it's a dark chapter, but there's lots to see. So come on in. Let's check it out together. glad you're here at the Bublical channel. Um, we just want to help people ring the chamois of life to the best of their ability. We want people to sound like the smartest people in the room when it comes to the Bible. We want, we, we don't want any credit. We just want you to sound better when you're talking about God. We just want people to talk well of God because we should be talking well of God. It's us that we should be talking, uh, you know, disparagingly against but God, we should be talking well of him because he's given us a great book and given us a great picture of him, ourselves, and the life and the world that we're living in. So that's what we want to do here at the Biblical Channel. Now, one thing's for sure. We all know the world is a mess. And we all know that men are behaving badly. And that describes most of the mess. And we all know that father failure, it, it really describes most men who are behaving badly. And so we need a change. We need hope. And God gives us change and hope. God in the Bible identifies the mess that we are making so that we can see the fix. And that's what these chapters in Genesis are going to do for us. God wants us to be real, like, like he's real. And, and, he will help us, and he is the fix. That's the name of the game. So before we dive into Genesis chapter 34 to 36, let's just pray the way the Lord Jesus teaches us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Golly gee, gee willikers, that's the real rub, isn't it? Deliver us from evil. Anyhow, let's lift our spirits and uh, take a journey back into Genesis chapter 34 to 36. And let's le read this, uh, you know, with a little bit of a sense of humor and a, and a lightheartedness, because um, Jacob's going to serve one up for us, and it's dark, so we need to keep our sense of humor about us. All right, well, let's dive into it. We have... Uh, Genesis chapter 34, and I suppose it's it's good we would kind of remember where we've come from so that you get why this scene um, is impactful as it is. Because I think for most people, they skip the Bible when it comes to this one. There's nothing, you know, I think a lot of people get confused. There's nothing to be confused about. God says what he says, and he means what he says. And we need to pick up on what he's saying. Anyhow, 
we remember Jacob's story. He was in Haran, and he's out of Haran, man. He is out of that sits in Laban with his uncle Laban, man. He had stepped in it so many times with that guy, and now he is heading south. And that's good news because he's heading south to where he said he was going to be. Jacob, at this point, we remember last week, this guy should be on a massive spiritual high. Because not only has he wrestled with God, and not only has God given him that name that he wrestles with God and men and prevails, but he's also reconciled with his brother. Because remember, when he went to, to Laban's house up there in Haran, you know, Esau wanted to kill him, and he had a hit out on him. And so Jacob comes back to find out that Esau is happy to see him. He's happy for all of his good fortune. And so Jacob should be riding a spiritual high. His confidence in God should be high. And, and uh, maybe it was for a moment. Um, and we should, you know, remember that Jacob, you know, from the beginning, when he was on his way to Haran in chapter 28, he vowed um, after, you know, God had revealed himself in a dream, he vowed that he was going to go back to his father's house in peace, you know, Isaac. And Isaac was living in Abraham's old homestead. Um, and that's exactly where Jacob should be since he's now the recipient of God's blessing. So it makes good sense that Jacob would vow to get back to his father, um, into his father's house in peace. And then in chapter 31, you know, God puts an end to Jacob's time in, in uh, Haran where, with Laban. He says, it's time to go back to your father and his kin. So then Genesis chapter 33 is, is Jacob, you know, sending word ahead to Esau that he's coming home because he's really afraid of how that's going to go. And, and so Jacob tells his brother, you know, meets up with his brother and everything's fine. And, and they're all slapping on back. You know, everybody's happy in Genesis or in chapter 33. Um, and, and uh, you know, Esau says, come on with me. And, 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 and Jacob says, no, 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 no. Uh, I got to go so slow because my, my, uh, my, my herds are really delicate. I can't really keep up with you. You go ahead. You go ahead. I'll meet you. I'll meet you in Seir where you live, Esau. And, and had Jacob gone to Seir um, where Esau lives, he would have passed through his father's house. So this sounds like a great game plan until you read the end of Genesis chapter 33. And then it's like squirrel, squirrel for Jacob. I suppose we ought to call it the proverbial squirrel, squirrel because Jacob doesn't see a squirrel. But what he does see is bad news. Jacob gets distracted because he's passing by Shechem, which in this story, you can't get confused because Shechem is a Canaanite city, but it's also the name of the son who's kind of on the stage in this episode. So this is a Canaanite son's name, and it's also the name of the city. So it seems like dad, whose name is Hamor, he actually names his son after the city. Makes sense because they're in charge of this city. Anyhow, that's beside the point. Jacob buys property outside of this Canaanite town. What about going to Esau's place? What about going to Seir? You know, see, we gave him credit. We gave Jacob credit last time for maybe not wanting to, uh, you know, disturb the good thing that was going on between him and his brother uh, by telling his brother to go ahead. But now, now we doubt his motives because now this scene starts reminding us, the end of chapter 33 starts reminding us of, of Abraham's nephew Lot. And this would be Jacob's uncle, right? 
great uncle. Um, and, and, and we remember Lot, you know, had fed Abraham a line of crap about, you know, where he wanted to go. Turns out he just wanted to buy property outside of Sodom because, well, mm, the Canaanites, you know, had, let's just call a sexy thing going on. Well, it wasn't too sexy for everybody, but the Canaanites by reputation in the Bible and elsewhere have a reputation for raping outsiders. Yeah, they rape men and women, both. They're non-discriminatory about that. They'll rape any outsider, which is odd because, well, it's not odd. You know, most uh, cultures during this time, they were fairly moral with themselves. But when it came to outsiders, they were simply debaucherous. Anything goes when it comes to a stranger, which makes the Bible so incredibly different than the rest of the literature and habits going on in the ancient world, because the Bible says, take care of the stranger. Anyhow, we don't want to get lost. What we should feel whenever we get to end of chapter 33 is there's a debaucherous debacle coming our way. Um, and another sexual debacle like, you know, Sodom is about ready to unfold. Jacob is, is actually as spiritually dim-witted as Lot is at this moment. And, and, prob and, and a lot more so than Esau is. Esau is showing, you know, growth, you know, in God. Jacob, he's backsliding. And so chapter 34 is all about father failure and the world that father failure creates. Abraham and Isaac, they had the good sense to, to keep a healthy distance, you know, from those Canaanites. But this scene this scene should have never happened. Jacob should have never bought that property, and we know it coming in. And this is what happens. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her and humiliated her. Man, this is all on Jacob. For the first time, Jacob is showing some real spiritual depravity here. And spiritual depravity always gets people hurt. That's right. And, and so the scene goes on. Um, the, this young man, Shechem, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman. He spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem went to his father, Hamor, and he said, Give me this girl for my wife. Now, Jacob had heard that Hamer, or Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriage with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also, Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, meaning Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. And ask for me a great, great uh, bride price as a gift, and, and I'll give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. 
Well, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Well, their words pleased Hamer and Hamer's sons Shechem. And the young man did not delight to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. And so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. And behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people." When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not the livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate to the city listened to Hamer and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar, Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever else was in the city in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives and all that was in the house, they captured it and they plundered it. Then Jacob finally says something. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Uh, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Okay, end scene. And man, that is dark. That's as dark as it comes. The rape of a young woman. Man, that is, that just, you know, I don't know about you, but I have a daughter. And that just makes my skin crawl. It makes me anger. I can appreciate the boys of Jacob and their anger. But what this scene is really all about is father failure and how father failure and men behaving badly is, is the, the scene here, but it's so familiar to us because we know it is the scene that we still live in. Father failure and men behaving ba badly is a concept tied together. Shechem, take Shechem, the, the, the young man who raped Dinah. What does he want to do? Well, he wants to marry her and talk loving things to her after he has assaulted her and raped her. And the text is very explicit here. The text, you know, is probably rougher than it even sounds in our English passage. He has done a nasty, nasty thing. And what does he think covers himself up? 
Well, just give her to me and I'll marry her. I love her. I I love this girl. Oh, it makes my actions excusable. B.S. You know? And then there's Jacob. Jacob, the father of this household, the father of of the story of God's household moving forward. This guy is dull. He is dull because he does not seem to care about Dinah. There is nothing in this text that says that he really cares uh, about what happened to Dinah. He doesn't care about justice for Dinah either. He is dull for any kind of justice that needs to happen to Shechem. Um, He is absolutely weak in front of his boys. Um, He seems to be detached. And, And there is absolutely no leadership for his boys in this scene which actually actually sets them up to take matters into their own hands. And when he does speak, he scolds them for not considering his reputation among the Canaanites. Pathetic. Jacob is absolutely pathetic, much like Lot was pathetic. Remember when Lot willingly wanted to give up his daughters for the you know, men that he was protecting in his house? That's not valor. That's not honor. That's not God. And then there's Hamer. Hamer is Shechem's father. And Hamer has no concern or care uh, for justice for Dinah either. And, And he's actually holding her captive to negotiate. This is a guy who, you know, does not take the rights and the value of women seriously. And, and he has no intention on holding his son accountable. He wants to cover it up, you know, with some niceties. As a, He wants to broker a deal. He thinks that marriage will excuse rape just like his son Shechem does. And he never does tell the, you know, he's a conniver too, because he never does uh, come honestly to the men of Canaan to tell them that they've got to make this deal because his son is is a maniac rapist. No, he doesn't say that to them at all. Instead, he deceives the men into Canaan uh, into getting circumcised uh, because he he says, oh, we'll get their daughters and their possessions. All of Jacob's daughters and possessions will become ours if we just get circumcised. And then there's the boys of Jacob, you know. I mean, you want to talk about a situation that's like a California wildfire. The boys of Jacob, they deceive Hamor into thinking that after their circumcision, they're going to give up all their daughters um, and their possessions, only to deliver up a dastardly plan of premeditated slaughter. Vigilanteism is the boys of Jacob. And let's just stop and, and say this. Hey, man, I, I, you know, I just want me and my wife just watched a show about vigilanteism. And, and when, when the character is in the right and everybody else is in the wrong, boy, there is nothing funner than to watch vigilanteism unfold before you. In fact, some of our great movies that we watch are all about vigilanteism. But listen, man, this is no form of justice. This is not God's way. And the text makes it very clear that no one in this scene is being directed by God, nor is it approved or condoned by God. These boys are off the hook because they have a failure 
of leadership in their father. And since their dad doesn't do anything or have anything to say, they take matters into their own hands. Like a good old-fashioned Hatfield and McCoy incident. You know, that that Hatfield-McCoy thing went on for decades and decades because violence knows no end in the circle of violence. Anyhow, then there's the boys of Shechem. And they're all in on trading their, you know, all they all they have to hear in order to trade their sore private parts, if you know what I mean, is is to hear that they're going to get some new daughters and to get some possessions from Jacob. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is a dark, dark scene, and it does beg the question: Why, why does the story take such a dark, dark turn? Don't we kind of expect the, you know, Jacob to become more heroic um, after he just had this, you know, great moment with, with God, you know, that where he wrestles with God and he, he reconciles with his brother. We certainly expect Jacob to turn into, you know, the kind of hero that we're proud of. And this scene shows just the opposite. But I think maybe a more important question is, what's God going to do about Well, let's read the text. God said to Jacob, Rise, go up to Bethel, dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us rise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods uh, that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So what's God going to do about this? Well, not what we thought or what we probably even hoped. The mess that that uh, is made here is 100% Jacob and Hamor's doing. It's a failure to father and men behaving badly, and it's all on their shoulders, as it should be. But the scene is there to help us to understand that God is very, very clear and aware of how this world works that we make and how this world uh, operates under the bad behavior of men and a failure to father. God understands the problems of the world. And that's part of the great point that's being made here because it's, it's this. It's the fact that God understands the problems of the world that makes God uniquely qualified to actually judge the world and and save the world. This is the profound grace of God that is very unique to the Bible. God will let the dastardly behavior of men keep going because, well, because he suffers long and because he is still offering the hope of salvation to human beings. Human beings are always off task and messing up the world. When the world is a mess, it is human beings' fault, not God's. God is actually on task with saving the world. So even this episode does not veer God off track. 
in keeping his promise that he made to Abraham, a promise that he made to Abraham that would actually bring blessing to the entire world. God interrupts Jacob, and he simply says to Jacob, get to where you should be, Bethel, where it began for you. And so I think we should hear just a, you know, a, stern, a stern set of words in this. This is like God grabbing Jacob by the ears and just saying, get to where you're supposed to be. If you've ever had kids and you've had a disastrous scene unfold around your kids, you understand God's language here. Go to where you're supposed to be. And funny because Jacob actually shows some good heart here. Because Jacob doesn't need to be told what the problem is. He intuitively knows the problem. And the problem is foreign gods, not the one true God. You see, foreign gods and the failures of the world go hand in hand. The Bible has been making that point since Genesis chapter 1. It's the foreign gods of this world, not the one true God, that is responsible and behind the scenes to, well, a failure to rule the world like God. Jacob's leadership actually allowed for his household to have foreign gods, and Jacob allowed himself to be influenced by the Canaanites, their gods, and clearly not the God who had revealed himself to him at Bethel and wrestled with him and gave him a new name. Jacob is not paying attention. Jacob does seem to be humbled that God showed up with grace and not a hammer. Because Jacob tells everyone that they've got to change their focus. They've got to repent of these foreign gods. They've got to throw them away. They've got to change their focus on the God who has always been with Jacob, even in the times of distress. Jacob makes a confession in his speech, and that is, we got to get back to the one God who has always been with us in our times of distress and has never gone away from us. So the incident seems to be shocking. And what incident I mean is the slaughter of this town seems to be so shocking to people. They don't give, they don't put up a fight to this at all. They know they're all in the wrong. The whole scene is bad. And, and it's just so shocking. Nobody disagrees or argues. Um, and everybody gives up the gods. And it just reminds us that the gods of our own making always lead us into the usual problems of this world. The gods of our own making always give us the, you know, the go-ahead with all of our bad ideas. And if we just stop for a second and just say this, you know, Genesis chapter 1 to this moment, you know, it hasn't, you know, it has made a few things very clear. And that is the God of the Bible is here to change the world. The God of the Bible made the world. And it's humans that mess up the world. And the one true God and his Bible to this very date have been, has been uniquely changing this world for the better. The world that we live in is the Bible's world. These are the, the, the ideals that we hear being yelled and screamed about, you know, are the ideals oftentimes that the Bible itself gave us. But nobody gives credit to the Bible. You see, it was the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 on that makes it very clear that there is one true God and that this God is above nature and beyond nature, not nature itself. You see, human beings like to worship nature. 
But God is not nature, and it's the Bible only that makes that point about God. The physical realm that we live in, the Bible says, is not the only reality. Human beings, the Bible says, God says, are uniquely elevated to the position of not animals, but image bearers of God. That every individual has equal and self-worth and hope in God. The idea of human equality and dignity, it begins right here in the Bible. Morality is expected out of everyone, and everyone, including God's own people, will be judged by God. God or good and evil are not simply opinions, but objective reality that should be known and is known by everyone. The Bible alone makes it very clear that might is not right. And humans, humans do have free will, but that free will cannot defeat God's sovereignty. You see, these are the principles that the Bible lays out that have truly been changing our world for the better, making the world that we live in a rational and actually doable place. But do you think the world gives credit to God of the Bible for these things? And we all know the answer to that is no. But anyhow, the text um, does move on. They journeyed, uh, as they journeyed, a terror fell from uh, fell from God upon all the cities that were around them. So they nobody pursued the sons of Jacob. Uh, and Jacob came to lose to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people were with him, and they built an altar, and they called the name of the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him whenever he had fled from his brother. And then we got an interesting line. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he named that oak tree Alon Bakuth, which simply means um, oak tree of mourning or weeping. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pad Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to, gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. I will give you the land to your offspring after you. God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering upon it and he poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Okay, what do we get here? Well, what we get here is that, you know, Jacob knew and he even prayed God's promise to get him home safely. And what Jacob should have known from the beginning is that God wanted him to get home safely and he would get him home safely. It seems like somehow Jacob fell into the trap of thinking that he had to please the Canaanites in order to get home. I don't know what was going on in Jacob's mind. But this text makes it very clear that when Jacob was heading in the right direction, God did exactly as he promised. He kept Jacob safe and sound. None of these Canaanites are going to you know, offer up some sort of terroristic threat on him. He gets him home where he's supposed to be. And then there is this hilarious kind of non sequitur in between about Deborah. And, and, and here we're told that, you know, Deborah, the nurse of Rebecca, dies, and they memorialize her. Okay, well, you know, we got to notice one thing, and that is 
God's blessing appears twice here to Jacob. And in the middle of this blessing is the death of Deborah and the memorial that is set up to the death of Deborah, which tells us something. It seems like Deborah was someone who did not lose focus on God, that even though she herself was a bit of an outsider, she herself was someone who seemed to be focused on the blessing of God, and therefore she is memorialized. Unfortunately, Rebecca did not finish strongly. She, you know, wrecked her home. She went against her son and, and her, her husband. And her, you know, funeral is, you know, her death is not memorialized. We don't know anything about it. But Deborah here, Deborah here, her death is memorialized, well, because obviously she's worth being remembered. Now, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but this the namesake of Deborah is going to appear again seemingly 500 years later in the book of Judges when Deborah, the judge, rises up to be a woman of faith and puts the weak men around her to shame. Hmm. Seems like there's a parallel going on here. But also we know that God knows what the world needs. And that's how the, the scene ends with God's blessing once again, because God knows that the world needs what he has to offer. And God is going to get his way. Jacob's, you know, ears are in clutch by God. You know, he's got them just like this. And God is simply saying to him, Jacob, you are not a heel grabber anymore, because that's what Jacob means. You are a wrestler with God and men, and you prevail. That's how my dad and everybody else's dad used to deal with ADD, grab us by the ears and, say, and talk slowly. That's what I imagine God doing here with Jacob again here, saying, Jacob, get focused. You see, Jacob has, being, has been doing neither. He has been wrestling with God and he has been wrestling with men. And he's certainly not prevailing because of that. God is actually making a people for himself named Israel that will wrestle with God and man and prevail. And then, you know, that becomes part of the wonderful story that what is God expecting here? God simply wants everyone to repent. Put away your gods and come to the God who wants you to wrestle with him and wrestle with men and prevail. You see, if God wants you to wrestle with him and with men and prevail, then you, are, you should get to the business of wrestling with God and men so that you can prevail. God is going to judge this world. Um, God is going to save this world. And it all begins with Israel, the person that will then become a nation. And God reminds Jacob of just that. Israel is a part of God's plan. Even if Israel is unfaithful, God will be faithful. And that's what's going on in this passage. God's promise to Abraham is the, is the world's good news with God. And that's what God is sticking with, and he's not going to change at all. Okay, so the scene kind of ends with Rachel dying and giving birth to her last son, Benjamin. And then um, uh, uh, Reuben, um, you know, the oldest son of Jacob, he actually, in the face of Rachel dying, steps up to, you know, sleep with his father's concubine, and all of Israel heard about it. And then Isaac dies, um, and when he dies, uh, uh, Esau and Jacob bury him. And, and we kind of, you know, end with, you know, I don't know, a, a, a kind of a, 
a gray moment, a, a, a sad scene. Israel's household, Jacob's household, is a mess. But at least he's in the right place. And why would God put his name on such a weak character? I think that's got to be one of our questions. Well, I think the answer is clear, and that is so that you would do better. If you read this text and you say, I would do better than that, then you've read it right. God gives us characters um, to understand so that we would say to ourselves, I can do better than that. You see, the Bible reveals a God who is realistic and gives us real hope because what he's asking of us is not hard. He's asking us to wrestle with him and with mankind and to prevail. God's grace is absolutely abundant for those who simply put their faith in him. He doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect growth. Esau at this point is going to end up looking far better than Jacob. In fact, the whole of chapter 36 is a tribute, really, to Esau's descendancy. And, and there's one line in here, so I'm not going to bore you with all the reading of his genealogy, but there's a massive chapter dedicated to Esau's genealogy, which is God tipping his hat to Esau and the future of Esau, which is the country of Edom, and it signals to us that, you know, God is concerned. But I want to read this passage where, you know, in, in verse 6 of chapter 36. Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the members of his household and his livestock and his beasts and all of his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went away into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, and so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So at the end of all of this, Esau is the one who's looking pretty good. The whole chapter of genealogy shows us that God's involvement and concern for Esau's nation and all nations, not just Israel. And Esau started out very poorly, we have to admit. You know, he was a spiritual dimwit. And, and, and maybe, you know, uh, maybe by his own father's failures, maybe. Um, and that would be a good point to make. But then Esau also showed promise because he wanted to be a good son. He's never been a bad man in this passage. And he certainly ends well here. He ends by being very happy for his brother's success. He's very happy that his brother is now back. And, and then here's the move that just you have to tip your hat to with old Esau. He makes his way for his brother to be the inheritor of God's blessing through Abraham. Remember when Esau was so mad about all of that? Well, he's certainly not mad about it now. And he simply seems to admit that, you know, Jacob is the inheritor of the blessing of God that he had made to Abraham. God's plan for saving the world is going to rest on you know, Jacob's shoulder. And so Esau just very kindly and politely moves aside with no argument. Once again, the question I think is, if Esau can end well, why can't we? We can. The passage is there to show us that life with God is very doable and worth our time. There is simply nothing like the God of the Bible. Father failure and men behaving badly still define our world. And God's plan of hope and change is the plan that he began in Abraham. Truly, 
the gospel of God, the good news of God for the entire world comes from Abraham. And God is offering a plan of hope and change to not just Israel, but to the whole entire world. God is concerned about not only Israel, but the, all of the nations of the world. And it all begins by getting rid of your gods and repenting and showing some gratitude and coming on board and wrestling with God and wrestling with men and prevailing. Stick with God. Stick with God and bad things like happened to Dinah don't happen. Stick with God is the name of the game. Come to God. Give up your gods. Come to the one true living God. And this story doesn't change from here to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ utters the same patient message. Come to God now. Leave your gods and come to God in Jesus Christ. It's the same God, full of grace, full of hope, full of change for our lives. And it is God in the Bible that have always made this a better world. And God will see his plan through to the very end. That's where we're going to end. Thanks for hanging with us. Thank you.